You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hey, welcome all you weirdos for Cohen refugees and specifically the guy who's been driving around my neighborhood in a yellow Jeep with a license plate that reads Snicked. I want to party with you, dude. As always, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I'm your host, Jason, back in the Wrong Turn studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me once again is my man, Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? Hey, doing all right. It suddenly seems like it's fall here in Seattle, which is unexpected, and we're still choking on Canadian air. Oh, those Canadians. Well, well, we will check in with Logan a little bit today, so you can take out your frustrations on him. Uh, No Alpha Flight, but we do have a tiny bit of Canadian content. Uh, We have a lot of books to talk about today. Uh, The big books we're going to talk about are X-Force number 43, Jean Grey number one. Hey, ain't she dead? Uh, And Realm of X number one. But before we do that, we're doing a section I'm going to call Briefly Noted, where there's some books that are kind of related to some X things going on, but that don't need a whole discussion. Our listeners, you can now look down at your podcast player and see how badly I'm lying about that briefly noted part, but we'll see what we can do. So Ruben's going to start us off by telling us what we need to know about Invincible Iron Man number nine, which is titled The End of Iron Man. Yep, The End of Iron Man. So this is the last book of Iron Man ever, and that's the end of Iron Man. No, <laughs> that's that's not what happens it's, in it's, this book. It's like Walking Dead where he ends it out of the blue, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. shocking. It was a big big uh decision by jerry duggan to kill off such a prolific character but <laughs> right before that the big uh we're gonna have a wedding but no that's, yeah, that was an yeah, all, all, all the fake out the it's funeral, funeral. issue is coming okay no, not, uh, <laughs> not really though folks don't don't rush out to buy this issue and put it in the slab it's 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 not real at the end of iron man yes yeah so basically it's it kicks off where we left off with tony stark facing down the stark sentinels uh he had put Emma Frost in the Mark 90 or wait, Mark 70, Mark 70 Iron Man uniform and said some escape phrase, which is, you know, basically flying her off. And he is in regular clothes, kind of uh, expecting to be blasted by the Sentinels. The the bit that doesn't make sense to me, and I don't really know how this happened. We get um, Captain America, Steve Rogers and Thor just showing up to back mm-hmm. him up. I, I, is that like a synergy with something? I, I really don't remember them kind of coming to his rescue, but I, you know, I think this it's is... just you know an Avenger thing. They might have a little alert that oh, was you know Tony's in trouble. We're going to show up and help out. Yeah, a, 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 Avenger Brotherhood solidarity. Yeah, and this is like post Hellfire Gala, right? Like this whole thing. So this is sort of um, yeah. Right, I, like I don't really know. It's like is it the same night or the next day? It's really really close. After yeah, really close. Yeah. So it's it's, it's yeah, it's bizarre. Basically. Tony is talking to Fei Long, who's like watching through the camera, camera eyes of the Sentinels saying like, you know, do you really want to do this? Kill an Avenger on like public TV. And Fei Long blinks and decides, nah, I'll take out Tony Stark later. So then uh, Tony goes into the New York subway and um, basically- That's that's where Emma was hanging out. That's that's where the the, suit took her. The suit, suit, yeah, the suit took Emma into basically the Morlock Tunnels. And she couldn't get out of the suit, right? Because she doesn't know the passwords to it. So Tony comes down and opens it and gets her out. And they have a kind of heartfelt talk about, you know, this is a horrible thing that happened. And she's talking about, you know, what happened to the, um, her daughters. And, mm-hmm. uh, he kind of brings her up to speed saying, like, you've been 
doxed essentially not doxed but like you know pr set up yeah set up yeah and like it's it's beyond just getting attacked by nimrod and all them like they've actually gone public to say like your meds were laced and yeah this is an interesting conversation because we know because we've seen solicits and we've seen the end of the book that there's a wedding coming up between these two but there's no overt like romantic dialogue or even flirting or anything going on like that directly on panel which is weird but the art is hinting really really strong that wedding's coming right we have like on page 20 there's a we see the two of them standing hand in hand surrounded by the various armors it really looks like a wedding picture. And Tony gives Emma a ring. It's not an engagement ring. It's that size shield ring we've been seeing her wear. This is also the origin of her brunette wig and uh, Tony's idea to resurrect the Hazel identity. So this takes place well before X-Men 25 because we see Emma's Hazel in that. So, uh, and, and even it's a little interesting end, that the ring, the kind of side dampening ring that he gives her is basically components from this Mark 70 Iron Man outfit. Yeah, he, so has he talks to turn about how, the outfits over to Fay Long, but he kind of yep. pulls out all the cool tech before he does that, and he makes yep. this from there. Yep, which is kind of interesting. And let me see some more stuff. You know, just catching up on what's going on with Iron Man, where um, She Hulk talks to Rhodey, and it looks like Rhodey's getting roughed up in jail. And then she talks to Tony and says, "Hey, I can't be your attorney and Rhodey's attorney because there's like a conflict of interest." So she fires him as a client, and. Uh, Anyways, eventually he goes back into the sewer because he tells Emma that, like, hey, I gotta take care of some stuff. And the stuff is basically giving Fei Long the shell, the Iron Man Mark 70 shell. And he goes back and she's still there waiting for him and they chit chat. And he talks about how his, like, his life is totally wrecked and they kind of have some finger pointing back and forth where this is, in my opinion, a pretty cool callback where she's like, hey, this is, you're like, your life is screwed. Or I think it's him, actually. He's like, the mutants got screwed because you didn't take Phalong seriously. And I warned you back at like the second Hellfire Gala that Orcus was maneuvering. And you, you know, kind of with a lot of bravado said like, no biggie, like we can take care of everything. Yeah, that was that was a pretty neat connection. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, she says you need to you know come up with some technology to counteract these Stark Sentinels. And he says, yeah, I can do that. It'll take some time. And we've seen that in Uncanny x-men or wait uncanny avengers uncanny avengers um that he said the roughly the same thing right that like he's working on some way to counteract the right, yeah. mutants but it's going to take a while to develop a new suit and he talks about how he's got another suit which is that stealth armor and we've seen that in the actual avengers comic that he's now wearing that so lots of cool like hey this is happening in the current continuity like connectivity and he gives her the hazel wig and clothes and She's like, hey, we should go talk to somebody um, if we're going to mount a like united offensive against Orcus to get kind of your life back and get Rhodey out of jail and, you know, get revenge for you know what they did to the mutants against Orcus. So they go to the Hellfire Club and uh, she introduces him to Wilson Fisk, who now owns it, which we've seen. Yeah, he's the new also, White King. We, we saw this uh, introduced in the immortal issue about Shaw, yeah. where he was, you know, tossed out on his keister and now we see yeah he is there in charge and he talks about how his dad was a member of the original hellfire club which is actually true i remember reading that in some back issue recently i think it might have actually been the life and times of uh not life and times the continuing adventures of uh, cyclops and phoenix Phoenix, yeah 
where we saw in the past. That right, right. We did see the, the past on Fire Club there. Very neat. I, I, yeah. I like it when things fit together like that. Yeah, so, so yeah, it all so worked out. It felt like this is very much in the MCU, and this is how he's dealing with it. And yeah, I, I it sort of like not a lot happens here, but it's stuff that I like seeing, and I was engaged in the you know developing relationship of these characters was interesting yeah, to me. The character stuff is is the big thing for me. Uh, he and Emma are interesting together, and I that really that odd. It's clearly intentional to have the art and the dialogue be at odds with each other. Right, they they literally draw them inside a heart together, and they they pose them in all sorts of wedding romantic poses. But none of that's going on in the dialogue. So I'm I'm really curious to see how they get to oh hey we're in an actual wedding, which I guess is happening in the next issue of this book. Yeah, and there's some stuff in here like some subs like meta stuff that I find kind of interesting. You know, obviously Emma is always out there in like skimpy clothing and kind of flaunting it, and she talks about how you know. She shouldn't have to change who she is to fit in requirements of like small minded men. And in the context of the story, it's like she's talking about like, stop, you know, she shouldn't have to hide that she's a mutant because people don't want mutants to be around. But I think it also works on the like, you know, hey, I'm this outgoing, attractive woman, woman, I can wear whatever I want without, you know, having to wear, you know, simpler clothing because it makes certain people uncomfortable. And so, so I thought it was pretty cool. And then also, Obviously, Tony Stark, right? He's kind of a flaunted guy himself, right? Being this outgoing uh, capitalist. So I actually kind of see how these characters have similar personalities, which before I didn't think of them as that, you know, similar, but mm -hmm. it, it's working. So I actually feel like this is a pretty cool twist. And now I'm suddenly like, oh, yeah, I can see these characters eventually becoming uh, romantic. Yeah. Invincible Iron for each Man other. is really almost an X title these days. It is so so tightly bound in. So do you want to give this book a rating or just uh Yeah, I'll give it a seven five. I thought seven it was five? pretty okay. great. Yeah. Nice. Like check it out. If you're at all interested in uh Iron Man and Emma, like you gotta read it. Okay, moving on, I'm gonna talk about Immortal Thor number one, All Weather Turns to Storm. It is uh not not that storm by the way, just a regular storm. It's written by Al Ewing, art by Martin Coppolo, uh and there's really only one page in this book that's super X relevant. And not even that relevant. It's just kind of putting it in the same universe. But I did want to speak about it because this is the new Al Ewing book following that Donny Cage Thor run that got finished off by Torin Bronbeck. We'll hear more from her later. Uh, and it's, it's really, he's trying to do it very much, I think, in the style of that very successful Immortal Hulk book where he starts off with a, a quote from one of the Norse Eddas. Just like the Hulk book had lots of uh, Jewish, my Jewish mystical writing quotes, that kind of thing. And uh, the scene here that matters is that, that Thor is in the setup part of the book. We're just kind of seeing him being a successful, badass superhero before he gets in trouble. And at one point, he's playing chess with some folks out in New York somewhere. And uh, one person tells him about a mutant in trouble. And he goes and rescues the mutant from some orcas goons. And then they all have a little party together. So, hey, good for that. So, not you don't need to buy this book to keep up on what's going up with the mutants. But it is a nice little bit of continuity showing that that book and this book are happening in the same universe. Uh, they don't mention the children of the Adamel, which I am going to mention <laughs> over and over again until people write in and tell me they're sick of it. Because... <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Okay, yeah, that is Thor number one. Uh, now, Ruben's going to tell us a little more about, what is the last one here? Oh, Ghost Rider number 17, part of the yeah. Weapons of Vengeance crossover. Yeah, so this came out last week, and we didn't cover it because we actually thought that this Weapons of Vengeance story was possibly a 
out of continuity or like a past continuity story that we could just kind of skip. I was hoping. But yeah. yeah, but I but I checked it out because I actually liked the alpha issue, um, which kind of surprised me. Uh, it's kind of got this good, gritty, kind of like supernatural vibe going. And so I was like, oh, I wonder if I would like the next issue. So I start reading it and suddenly realize this is actually supposed to be like post Hellfire Gala, what Wolverine is doing story, which I really did not think that was what was going on. And okay. I kind of feel like that it's a little bit of a weird twist to think that like he would go from like his country nation being annihilated to like let's it's go kind of deal awkward, with this right it doesn't feel yeah. like this book was intended to have anything to do with this particular era i mean this you know 10 years from now if anyone picks up this trade they won't need to know anything about the fall of x the hellfire gala any of that nonsense they'll just it'll read like a, a wolverine ghost rider team up and they'll make a couple panels where they reference what was happening in the Marvel Universe at the time. Yeah. And at the Hellfire Gala, like I remember Emma, or not Emma, sorry, Jean appeared to Logan like right before she died, right? And she was like, go do what you do, right? Which it sounded like she was kind of telling him to like unleash the beast on Orcus, right? right. Just be be the best that he is and the thing that's not very good or however that quote goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, so Chris the, Claremont, I bungled it. It seems like if this is what he was, <laughs> he misunderstood the message. If he's like, oh, she's telling me to go deal with <laughs> go, this one thing. And go team up with Ghost Rider and kill demons, right? That's <laughs> what Gene wants. Yeah. So it's a little weird. But basically, um, the gist of the story is there's some demon in the past that was like, I guess it was possessing some kid. And the kid had been brought to the X mansion because the social service worker thought the kid must be a mutant. And Xavier, like, scan the kid was like oh yeah that's not why he's got this like weird stuff going on in his life like people dying it's because he's possessed by a demon so you can't drop the kid off here you got to go talk to dr strange or something like that so kicked him out of the mansion and at, in that past timeline logan went out to like i guess he had some reason to follow the kid and he was looking for the kid and he didn't find the kid he instead found ghost rider and they fought blah 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 and then the kid kind of like fell off the radar and so now there's more deaths that are occurring that reminds him of like the deaths that were caused by the demon possessing the kid. So he goes and finds Johnny Blaze and says it's happening again and we got to go hunt it down. Yeah, some and real, deal with it. real gross out kills like bodies and body parts arranged in like totem pole looking situations or like demonic possession pictures and geometric figures. It's, I don't know, Ben, ben Percy, I don't think I'd like to be his neighbor. He's, he seems like an odd dude. Yeah, so there's a so basically we see some scenes with an adult who I'm guessing is like the grown up version of this kid looking for mutants, which is weird. I don't know why it's going after mutants specifically, but it kind of murders some people at a baseball game, and then we see some Easy Rider scenes with uh, Logan and Johnny driving the motorcycles all over the place, investigating different scenes of you know I guess mutants fused in horrible art totems. Yeah, so it's a, it seems like a, a decent enough Wolverine Ghost Rider team up. If you know, if if you're the kind of person who gets excited when you hear about a team up between Logan and Ghost Rider, you're, you're getting what you expect, right? This is this is Ben Percy doing his body horror, gross demons, you know, violence thing, and it, it, it's it's not at all connected with the other mutant stuff, other than I, I guess you know they mention again the background that oh. This yeah, is so Johnny's, going on. Johnny's, from his perspective, because this is the Ghost Rider issue, he's like, oh, I'm very much like Logan, and then here's this stuff that happened. Orcus attacked, and he's the last man standing, and it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't see that as being like 
that similar to your life. But yeah. Um, so yeah, during their investigation, they go through and they're looking for this. Yeah, they meet up with Jeff kid. Bannister. So nice to see they, him. They meet up with Bannister and he helps them get a little closer to finding the, the possessed demon. And um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. You want to give this book a rating? Not essential reading, but I am I am enjoying it. This is sort of a cool team up for me. And the next issue is teasing Hot Claws Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, <laughs> uh, which I, I kind of think like some of these absurdities like really amuse me. And I probably get more excited than I should about it. But um, I'm going to another 7.5. I enjoyed it. Absolutely not essential reading, but for somebody who doesn't like Wolverine to... Have fun with the issues. I think that's probably a good sign. All right. So that was reasonably quick. We did three books in like 15 minutes. For us, that's record time. Uh, now on to some meteor discussions. Uh, first up is X-Force number 43, Friend, Farmer, Soldier, Spy, which of course is a reference to uh, John LaCarre's Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, appropriate given Colossus's status as a, an unwitting double agent. This book is written by Ben Percy, art by Robert Gill. Colors by Guru Effects, letters by Joe Caramagna, design by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. This isn't my favorite book of the week, but it is like the most important. It's, it's If you don't read this book, you'll be missing kind of a chunk of the main line of the story, I'd say. It's not a bad book. It's just there's some really even better ones, I think, coming up. I was really curious what uh, X-Force was even going to be like post-Gal. I mean, what is what is the status of a team like this when Krakoa has only Professor X on it. So what happens here, it's something I didn't expect because I, I don't read solicits when I can help it. We go back in time to immediately before the gala, and the book shows us those events again from the perspective of X-Force. And we learn about something else that happens that night, which is kind of cool. So overall, a pretty good book, you think? I was surprised, yeah. This was good. And um, I guess this is the second book of Ben Percy's this week I've liked, and I think I liked his writing last week, so I'm kind of dumbfounded. I usually find him pretty mediocre, but he's he's telling some tales that I've wanted told. And maybe trying to give him some credit, maybe things were really delayed by, you know, they made the decision to come out with the Hellfire Gall and they told everybody to write these sort of delayed, convoluted, yes, things did seem stories. to be kind of spinning in place for a while. And, and and now this book is is telling us some some cool things. So just to give everyone some background, let's start with Colossus. He is the new Quiet Council liaison to the X-Force. He's also under the influence of Chronicler, whose name I can never spell correctly the first try, and is also a mutant who can control people by writing them into like a, a narrative. Chronicler works for Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus and Magic's evil brother, who it turns out is not at all coordinating his evil operation with Orcus. Now this issue makes me even more confused though about exactly how Chronicler's power operates and what Colossus kind of knows about what's happening to him. Did you also get that feeling? Or maybe we're just wrong about it in the past. Maybe it does make sense. No, it does no. not. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I was trying to give him credit, but all right. No. Chronicler is a very cool idea, but I I just need it spelled out. Like, what does his powers do? And Yeah, like over a Night Terror. Just give us the rules. Come on. It almost, it almost feels like his power is, I have the ability to specifically only control Colossus. And not very well. Like yeah, I it's sort of influence him, but not idea. exactly. Is, does he also have other writings about other people? Can he only do one at a time? Yeah. I'd like to know. Yeah. So, yeah. He, I don't think he's really on board with Mikhail. We have seen that a bit, right? That yeah, he's, he kind of does what Mikhail wants, but he's not. There's probably going to be a, a turn somewhere where he is the one who throws off Mikhail's yeah. commands and lets 
you know, lets Colossus free. That, that looks like where we're going, but not so quite I, in a in a sense, like the fact that it's sort of sometimes he controls him, sometimes he doesn't exactly control him kind of works for me because like I can imagine he's you know, not trying to do exactly what Mikhail wants, but right. it he's, does he's, it does feel I very think like he's malingering, I guess, might be the technical mm-hmm. term where he's he's doing what he's told, but not to the best of his ability, something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, also we should remember that in the prior arc when they were all bopping through time, Colossus was able to give Domino a little bit of a clue that something was up with him and kind of yeah. hinted that she should go investigate his uh, his house in the Savage Land. And that's going to come up here. Yeah. <clears throat> so that part f- annoyed me because it was like, oh, he can finally do something because he's outside the influence of the Chronicler. I'm like, just tell him I'm under control. <laughs> right, because again, that's how does that control work? It, yeah, it was it was a little confusing. But when we first see Colossus in this issue, it's it's right, right, right before the gala. He's all dressed up in his military-looking outfit, and he's he's all upset because the narration box tells us he feels unworthy of the name Colossus, and tonight his deformity would be known to all. So again, this makes it sound like he knows he's being controlled, and he knows what the plan is for later tonight. So he's not just being told in the moment, do this, do that, do this. He knows the overall what's coming up. And again, if he knew all that, why didn't he spill his guts to Domino when he was traveling through time? Next, we check in on old man Kid Omega. And we've been wondering, or at least I've been wondering, what his status quo was going to be going forward. Uh, uh, was he going to stay as the old man? Was he going to be resu- resurrected back into a kid? Uh, or, or what was going to happen? And I had forgot all about how back in X-Force 28, he was shown using these multiple husks. Like he had the five make him brainless, mindless, soulless, pink-tinged bodies based on Domino, Beast, Logan, Colossus, Juggernaut, and even Emma. And we were told there that Quentin would remote pilot the given husk using, quote, some combination of telepathy and telekinesis. So like he was still in his regular body, but he was mentally remote controlling the thing. In this issue, we see all those old husks again, plus a new one, that, hey, convenient, looks just like Quentin's old, young self. In this case, Quentin psionically downloads himself into that body. So he's not just remote controlling it, he's actually in it. Uh, and just like that, he's, he's back looking like young man Kid Omega again. Uh, and for some unknown reason, his psionic powers are on the fritz, probably just because they had to nerf him for this issue, otherwise he would stop Orcus, is my guess. I really, I'm not a big fan of these, the powerful characters powers aren't working because the plot has to happen maybe there'll be a good explanation but i'm, I'm kind of tired of this this just happened in the time travel arc so we're doing it again you can't have him powerful when he faces mikhail otherwise what's the risk right that is the problem with having super powerful characters yeah oh and another question what happens to the old man body we just don't see it again after the psionic download panel begins and that was a page turn is it just like lying dead on the floor out of frame? Decomposing. Too gross. Nasty. <laughs> I, I, we're not supposed to think about that. But he, he's, he's young man Kid Omega again. I am curious to see if he's mentally any different because he's had, I don't know, decades and centuries of experience. Or is he still going to be his old, his old self? Who knows? Okay, moving forward, we see the X-Force team, other than Colossus, is not invited to the gala. No, no fancy gowns for any of them. They're supposed to keep an eye on the situation remotely from back on Krakoa and only respond if they're needed. It really reminds me of the Justice League, and they're all on monitor duty. Nobody likes monitor. And presumably, this was all arranged by Colossus to keep these folks away to make it easier for Mikhail's plan. 
to succeed. Right? Now we get a data page that I'm going to call just flat out cheating. You're, you're cheating on us, man. This is not the way the, Ben Percy, not the way this is supposed to work. Uh, all these data pages from Chronicler have been him writing, controlling Colossus, right? Telling the story. But this is just him taking dictation from Mikhail, just telling us the readers what the plan's going to be. Cheater, cheater, cheater. Uh, and yeah, the plan is that Mikhail has all these well, a thousand super soldiers, like those nesting doll types we saw. Even a couple of them really made a big problem on Krakoa. So they're all going to invade through a portal during the, the gala. He has no idea that uh, Orcus is also going to do more or less the same thing. <clears throat> so uh, Colossus, at the same time, furtively goes and plants a Krakoan gate seed in a cave right below X-Force HQ, which it's kind of weird, does it, right before the gala? I mean, like... Moments before, I, I guess to minimize the chance that it gets discovered. Yeah, uh, that's my guess. I don't know how he's going to explain how his, his boots are all wet and sandy, but maybe he has another pair. Changes off screen. I don't think he needs to explain anything because I think the idea was in Mikhail thought this was where he was going to invade Kirko and take over, kill everyone, and now be the dominant power. Well, I mean, Colossus right now is going to the party, and I'm just wondering if, if he's going to look out of place because mm. he's, you know, leaving sandy footprints. Mm-hmm. Not a big deal. So the gala's underway. Uh, most of the X-Force characters seem completely bored by monitor duty. Deadpool leaves. He wants to go to the party. And, of course, this explains why he's not tied up with the rest of X-Force post-gala, and he's available to be part of Cap's Unity Squad in Uncanny Avengers. Yeah, so, I liked that. Yeah, I a nice little a bit nice of coordination little... between books. Yep. Well done. Domino leaves, and we'll see where she goes in a few pages. So the four remaining in X-Force HQ are Sage, Kid Omega, Laura, Oh, and, and oh yeah, Omega Red's in this issue too. Uh, I, I may as well mention now, Omega Red has, I, I checked this carefully, zero lines of dialogue in the whole issue, performs zero notable actions. He's, he's a piece of furniture. Yeah. I think, here's my hypothesis, Ben Percy forgot he existed until after the script was turned in, and Robert Gill just remembered to draw him in on a few backgrounds. That's that's my hypothesis. Again- well, he's, the, he's the brunt of a joke. Deadpool makes a- a comment about how he's taking notes and draws a picture of I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but again, it almost feels like he was remember he was resurrected he was killed and resurrected off panel yeah. and no one mentioned it. It Omega Red's being just pushed out of this book. Everyone forgets he exists. I just don't think that anyone at least Ben Percy doesn't have an idea of what to do with him. He had a couple focus issues, I think, earlier, uh where he and Sage had some interesting interactions, but since then He's, he's just been in the background. So back at the gala, I'm probably pronouncing gala, 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 18 different ways because I don't know how to pronounce it. So deal with it. Uh, back at the party, we see a fast-forwarded version of the Orcus attack through the eyes of Colossus. Now, everyone's surprised, of course, but Colossus, he's extra surprised because he knew there was going to be attack, but he didn't know what it was going to be this attack. Now, Sage sees what's happening back in, you know, monitor duty. Colossus tells her, no, 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 stay put. We'll handle things here. Uh, so again, this doesn't seem to be Chronicler controlling him directly. It's Colossus freelancing, but still acting in a way to protect Mikhail's plan. Odd. I, again, I don't think that's the way this worked. So X-Force decides to disobey orders, head to the gala anyway, but they're met by Colossus himself, who says he's here to lead the charge and he knows a back way. Domino, almost in the nick of time, radios to Warren Sage, hey, don't trust Colossus, something's up. So she stops following him, but Sage doesn't speak up in time to save the rest of the crew. Uh, Colossus leads Quentin, Laura, and oh, Omega Red, he is there, through his new gate, 
and off to where Mikhail is preparing the invasion force. So Mikhail was going to go through the door in one way, but Colossus sees that things have gone kablooey, and he kind of brings X-Force to them as at least now you have some prisoners, which is, again, more initiative than you'd think Colossus would have in a pro-Mikhail sense. So off, I think I skipped uh, I, I skipped the whole scene about Domino. Yeah, so she she follows up the lead and looks for the missing girlfriend and finds a conveniently sparse spot of land in a garden near their house and digs it up and finds the corpse. Yeah, so he, she sees some paintings and she says, your brother Mikhail is clearly on your mind, but so is Kayla. Now, Kayla, you can see the picture of her. I don't know what Domino sees that makes her say the Mikhail thing. I don't know. Again, I think there may have been some miscommunication between art and writing because it's not really shown. And then here's a, a pet peeve of mine. Domino digs a giant hole. I estimated like six to eight cubic yards of dirt she removes in like two minutes. And this this is a thing that happens in movies and TV and comics. It's not easy to dig a big hole, people. I don't know. I maybe dig she holes. Used, it takes a while for sure. I don't, she, maybe <laughs> she used her, her – if she was drawn using her magic Krakoan gauntlet to do it, I'd buy that. But they're showing her just using a regular old shovel, and this should take days to do it. Again, nitpick. Pet peeve, oh well. But yeah, so she finds uh, Kayla dead down there, and that's when she radios to Sage and say, uh-oh, don't trust Colossus. If this was me, she'd like do like four shovel bits and then like pant and fall down and <laughs> take a water break. <laughs> <laughs> call yeah, call a contractor like and shovel with some equipment. Long, yeah. yeah, long after the Hellfire Gala was <laughs> over. She's like, why did I do this? <laughs> Yeah, so it's a, a pretty good issue with some, some bits that don't quite hang together. I mean, the biggest being that Colossus thing that we've, we've picked on a lot. I, we just like to know how it works. I would also like to know, where is Sage now post-Gala? post, post -gala? Did she do the Red Triangle thing? Did she get pushed through a gate? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we've seen her. Have we seen her she yet? No, no. Okay. Uh, and then what's up with Kid Omega? Why is he nerfed? Kind of because he had to be. Uh, we know where he is. He gets pulled through that, that gate to be trapped by Mikhail. So that's where he's going to be. And that's why he can't be so super powerful that he just wins now. Uh, what's going to happen with Domino? She's in the Savage Land when uh, Xavier tries to push everybody through a gate. Does she go through a gate? Does her Krakoan gauntlet stop working now that her Krakoa doesn't work, just like the children of the vault pod stop working? Yeah. That's an interesting um, idea. Speaking that's not going to happen. That's too clever. But that's definitely <laughs> what should other happen. Characters, no, where where is Beast these days? He's he's supposed to be out there still trying to protect Krakoa's interests. This is a big change. What? How is he going to react to all this? That'll be really. I'm really curious to see what happens there. Now that the art looked really good, I enjoyed that a lot. I'm not much into fashion. Uh, anyone who's ever seen the way I dress knows that. But I did like Colossus's party outfit, which has just a little bit of a Russian look to it. Which makes sense because he is Russian, but also kind of hints at the people controlling him. So that was nice. I really like the locations of this issue, the beach and the cave. There was one weird panel where it looked like all those super soldiers were kind of floating in space. There was just no no floor that the, the perspective seemed off. But other than that, yeah, good looking story. Uh, you know, I have a lot of complaints because that, that's what I do here. But yeah, I, I enjoy the issue and I want to see what happens next. I'm going to give this a... 7.8 out of 10. Yeah, I'll give it a 7.5. I thought it was cool. And there are some stakes. I'm actually worried about um, young Laura because I was like, this would be a really convenient way to kill off one of them. 
All right. We did uh, suspect that back when we first found out we had two Lauras. We said, eh, they're probably going to get rid of one of them pretty soon. And this this would be an opportunity to do that. Interesting. But I've been waiting for this. You know, they talk about this is four years in the making. This is like one of the few X-Force stories that I have wanted to see play out. And now we will see it. Yeah, we have been asking for months and months and months. When is this going to actually, you know, play out this Mikhail Colossus thing? And here it is. So we got what we asked for. Next up, we have Jean Grey, number one of four. This issue is called Mind Me. It's written by Louise Simonson, who is a writer and editor who's been part of X-Men history for decades now. Art is Bernard Chang, colors by Marcelo Mayolo, designed by just Jay Bowen. And as I like to say every time this book comes up, hey, ain't she dead? And the answer is kind of, maybe. I want to... I want to come out really quick and say I was expecting to hate this issue and I was pleasantly surprised. It went a different direction than I expected and in my mind, an interesting direction. Yeah, very cool. I don't know that it really necessarily matters in the sense that X-Force matters to the ongoing story, but uh, yeah, it's it's, it's pretty cool. I I enjoyed it a lot. So it will or it won't, but... Oh, climb yeah. off that limb there, Ruben. Easy man. <laughs> no, but I could, I could very. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the like crazy speculation as to why I think this is super critical. But uh-huh. it certainly it could not matter. But I will I will explain it when we get there. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, because this issue and probably the entire miniseries until maybe the last few pages of the final issue all takes place in the mind of Jean Grey. Uh, if you look at the title page, which usually gives a list of the book's major characters. All we see is Jean Grey six times over. Mm-hmm. So where exactly is Jean? It's it's unclear. Is she in the astral plane, the white hot room, something like that, right? It, it probably doesn't I, matter. I imagined that this first shot of Jean is her dying at the Hellfire Gala, and Maybe, she's thinking about some stuff. That's not how she was dressed at the Hellfire Gala. It's not okay. That's a good point. But I, I, that would be one possibility. Yeah, but the, the clothes don't match. Life so, flashes before your eyes as you're about to die. Yeah, this could all be in a. You know, a, a postmodern Finnegan's Wake kind of way. Because she talks about how she's death. dying again. You know, I'm dying again, but there's nothing new and dying, blah, blah, blah. I've been there. Mm. So what I think Louise Simonson's plan is here is to take us on a tour of possible alternate lives of Jean Grey, similar to what we saw with the many lives of Moira McTaggart, but in an of the mind kind of way instead of actual multiple timeline. And see, that's where I disagree. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to see because this issue's of the mind alternate life involves a tweak to the time-displaced original five and the extermination event, which is a bit of continuity I did not expect to see in this book. So, Ruben, how familiar are you with this this part of X-Men lore? So, I'm just about to the part where this happens in the old comics, and I know this was like a Bendis thing, right? Yes. All new X-Men came. Yeah. So basically they went back and grabbed the old X-Men yeah, and brought I'll, I'll them to the present. I'll give you a brief synopsis. This will spoil maybe the next couple issues you read, but people need yeah. to know the basis. Uh, in, in 2012, Brian Michael Bendis wrote a title called All New X-Men spinning out of the Avengers versus X-Men event. In the first issue of All New, Beast, time travels back to the very early days of the X-Men. Like, think Silver Age, Stan and Jack, right at the very, very, very beginning. I think this I'm sure someone knows exactly what issue this takes place in, but it's like like a single-digit issue of that first series. So Beast takes those versions of the X-Men back with him to the present, or his present, uh, the idea being that the current X-Men had kind of lost their way, 
and needed to be reminded of when they were young, idealistic, yada, yada. You get it. So this group is usually called the time-displaced original five. They are young versions of Hank, Warren, Scott, Bobby, and Gene. And they stuck around in X-Men continuity for surprisingly long, from 2012 all the way to the extermination event, that's lowercase e, capital X, termination, in 2018. So about six years they were around for our time, and they went away only about seven months before House of X number one. Yes. Lots of weird stuff happens in extermination, but the important part for us is that the time-displaced original five get sent right back to the same moment they were taken from, right, trying to prevent paradox. Mm-hmm. And when they get back to the past, in the original event, young Jean Grey performs some psychic surgery on all of them, including herself, suppressing the memory of everything that happened to them during their six years in the future, or however long it was for them. Yeah. The idea was that it had like a time delay to it. Once they aged up to the point where they were past when they went back, they would suddenly remember everything that happened to them. So the older versions suddenly remembered, hey, oh yeah. We travel through time to the future for however long, which is a pretty cool way of dealing with the paradox issues. Yes. I kind of like. Now, here is my wild speculation. Okay, go for it. (laughs) So that was that was the end of that storyline, right? But a lot of people were complaining about the all of the X-Men folks being a little wonky when House of X happened. This, I think, is a stab at oh, they were wonky because what really happened is Gene didn't really do that mind whammy and decided not to do that mind whammy. And so, because we were told that like this new life of Moira is like a different timeline than we were expecting, right? You mean Gene? Yes. No, no, okay. no, no. No, sorry. The House of X timeline, right? Oh, like, okay. You know, I oh, actually the, the think- The theory that this is not the same- timeline as we're used to reading in all the other books? Correct, yes. So I think that they're saying that the House of X timeline is this timeline, right? And that in reality, she went back and she didn't really wipe everybody's minds. And therefore, by the time the people got to the point where they would have bringing everyone over to Krakoa, they were a different set of X-Men than we think they were. Huh. Well, so in that case, think if, about that going forward. If it plays out that way, then this will be a huge title. But that's the crazy Ruben speculation. That's that's a pretty hot take. That's, that's not where I'm going, but we'll see. So, uh, folks, if you want to know more about the whole original five extermination bit, uh, besides reading the issues, I strongly suggest you check out our old pal Chris's Cosmic Treadmill podcast. He has a whole series of episodes going through all this stuff in, in detail. It's really good stuff. So the what if that kicks off this issue is young Jean. And again, I think this is only happening in... Jean Grey's mind as she's wherever she is after she gets killed at the gala. So what I'm saying is, and again, you're going to get annoyed with me and my crazy theories. I think she's remembering her past. Oh, you think she's remembering something that actually happened where I think she's just imagining a possibility. Yeah. So my theory is she's thinking back to, oh yeah, this is, I am the Jean that was the young Jean that was sent to the, back to the past, but I didn't actually wipe everyone's minds. Yeah. Either way, what, what happens here? In, in reality or in her mind, is young Jean in this telling of the story says, hey, you know what? Why should I erase all our minds? You know, paradox, schmaradox. We're now so much stronger. We know more. Uh, the Jean who got sent to the future, well, the Jean from the Silver Age had had her, a lot of her uh, psychic abilities blocked by Professor X because she couldn't handle them. And in the future, that block was removed. So now she's way, way, way more powerful. So she doesn't want to give it up. She says, hey, we're just going to hang on to this. And you know, what could possibly go wrong? And the answer, of course, is 
everything. So the five take down Magneto, no problem. Jean just uses her TK powers to knock off his helmet, and then her telepathic powers just erase the poor guy's mind. Make him, I don't know, can we say drooling vegetable these days? I'm not sure what the correct way to say is, but she just basically blanks his mind. Doesn't kill him off, but he's he's not Magneto anymore. He's no, nobody. Now, Jean does a, a lot of mind erasing in this issue, which is an aspect of her character that was pretty front and center during her time in the future, right? She did, she was really itching to do mind stuff in the future now that her powers were unlocked. So it kind of works here. As Simonson has, has, has read these books. She knows, uh, yes, yeah, she, she, Simonson has, knows her character from the Silver Age days and Bronze Age. And also she's up to date on the more modern stuff, which is, is nice. Not all these classic writers really feel like they know the modern iteration of the character so much, but, but, uh, Louise does. Now, in the story, Jean, because she's been to the future, she knows a bunch of people who are going to manifest as mutants. So she goes and gets Kitty Pride and Danny Moonstar and Sam Guthrie way earlier than happened in the regular books. Uh, and then she messes with like a lot of the parents' minds, so they don't put up a fuss. Either they just think they're off the boarding school, or they I think Sam's family forgets he exists, which is yikes. So Xavier and the rest of the original five are getting more than a little suspicious of Jean by now, just for messing with minds left and right. So what does Jean do? She messes with their minds. She mind wipes Pam Tilby, Hank's girlfriend, who another nice continuity bit. Uh, she mind wipes Hank himself, and then she goes full on Phoenix, fights all her friends, and ends up, uh, I think she destroys, I don't know, the entire Earth, the entire universe. However, she the Phoenix powers go nuts. You know, oops. So, of the mind, Jean treats this as a, a learning experience. Hey, well, I won't do that again. But she sees another opportunity further down the timeline of her life where she still thinks, hey, I could make a change here. And the final panel of the book shows the nose of a space shuttle, almost certainly alluding to X-Men Volume 1, Number 101, which is the very first appearance of the Phoenix. So, yeah, I like this issue a lot. I don't know that it's going to mean all that much other than probably as a means to resurrect Jean back into the main story. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I'm buying your, your theory right now, Ruben, that this is what really happened. I, I think, I think we're just getting some gene working through her past in a, in a cool way. Yeah. But we'll we find see. out. We will see. This is I, only, only four issues. Most of the miniseries are five. <laughs> this one is four. And we do know that, uh, there is a gene gray focus issue coming up in Immortal, where we know every issue of Immortal has one character who gets to tell the narration boxes. So, She's going to be around again in the current continuity one way or another. So I don't know exactly how, but clearly, duh, Jean Grey is not dead forever. So the art has kind of a cartoony, airbrushy look that isn't my favorite style, but it, it conveys the plot well. It is actually pretty fitting for a flashback, quasi-Silver Age hallucination kind of a story. I don't think anybody out there, again, needs to read this book in order to understand The Fall of X. But if you like Jean Grey, and especially if you like Louise Simonson, you're going to have a real good time reading this, and I'm giving this an 8.8 .8 out of 10. Wow. How about you, Ruben? Yeah, I just get a regular 8, but I was very pleasantly surprised. I'm not a big Jean Grey fan, and um, I always feel like it's just a repetitive, same old story with her. And then I also get annoyed because she has caused so much destruction, and yet she's always the first to judge anyone who she thinks is you know, not doing things the right way. I'm still pissed that she was critical of Scott for wanting to wipe out the brood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, 
That is that is Jean Grey for you. A lot of times, characters only have that one story. You know, you're uh, over in DC, you're cyborg, am I man or I machine? Yeah. People who have hangups about their, maybe their parents, whatever it is. But yeah, it would be nice to see Jean Grey get past that. But if we're going to revisit the Phoenix, I really enjoy the way that uh, it's happening here. So that's cool. Our next book, and I guess it's our, our last book of the podcast, is Realm of X, number one, titled The White Witch. Now, give a spoiler. I didn't notice the title my first time through, and so the ending took me by surprise. And, you know, if you haven't read it, go read it first. But the White Witch of the title is indeed Her Royal Wyness herself, the Omniversal Majestrix Opal Luna Saturnine. But don't don't run away. I know last time we've seen her. Didn't I mention recently? Oh, I hope Saturnine doesn't come back in this book. I this forget is your what favorite we're talking character, about. Though. Why would you what, not want her to be back? <laughs> what book were we talking about where, where her name came up in the discussion at the end? I can't remember. Oh, I don't recall. She did come up recently, but yeah, here she is. Uh, so Realm of X is written by Torin Gronbeck, art by Diogenes Neves, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. This this is another weird book. Not weird in the same way as Jean Grey, but still pretty weird. I've read it a few times now, and it's starting to grow on me. First time, I didn't really yeah. care for it. It does technically spin out of the gala, but the story doesn't seem at all connected with any of those larger issues. It's just they needed an excuse to get these characters in a certain location, and hey, they all went through a portal, yada, yada, here they are. There's a good excuse. I want to say I kind of like it, but my biggest <clears throat> complaint about this is I don't like the characters in it, which... I kind of need these issues to tell me why I should like this collection of X-Men because I just really don't. But the mm-hmm. the overall plot and ideas behind it, I think, are kind of cool. Yeah. So just to list the characters, we have Magic, Danny Moonstar, Typhoid Mary, Dust, Marrow, and Curse, which is a weird-ass collection of characters. Yeah. And I think this has been my issue with some of the Torin Gronbeck writing over on the DC side of things where – she doesn't always seem to have a really firm grasp of the character. She doesn't always give them a distinctive voice, one that yeah. meets how what I expect of those characters. And yeah. I think for the adults here especially, they do seem kind of interchangeable. Like Typhoid Mary especially yes. is not acting like the, the weird, crazy, multiple personality Typhoid Mary that we've seen in the past. Yeah, she's just like a proxy, rich, stuck-up character, right? I'm like, I don't know who this character is. So before we, we get into this, uh, I, I know I've already ruined this for you, Ruben, but, but folks out there, do you happen to remember, again, over on the DC side of things, a book called Justice League Odyssey, which started in 20, uh, 20, 2018. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, and I did check with some folks in the Get Fresh crew, Beep Boop, and I, I'm more or less on target, I think. That story was about four DC characters, kind of an oddball collection, who find themselves stuck in the ghost sector, and oddly... The people they run into there have a pre-existing prophecy about three of them and even have built statues to three of them. Now, in Realm of X, you know, totally different book, five mutant characters plus a kid find themselves trapped in Vanaheim. And oddly, the people who live here have a pre-existing prophecy about four of them and have built statues to them. Now, I'm not saying Torin Gronbeck is stealing anything, but a weird collection of coincidences, coincidences for... You know, a pretty obscure book, I'd say. Yeah. So, uh, did I completely ruin this entire book for you now? That comparison annoyed me because it's spot on. <laughs> but, yeah, I and I and I read the first part of Odyssey, so I should have maybe picked up on it. But um, yeah, I think it's a good comparison. It's it's strangely similar. I would I would love to ask Torin Gronbach, Hey, are you taking inspiration? 
Did you read this? Is it just a completely weird coincidence? But I'm just curious. We're never going to know, but it, it did jump out. So, you know, so we have this collection of characters, uh, Magic, Danny, Mary, Dust, Marrow, and Curse. And if you look back at the Hellfire Gala, I did check out that issue again, which I've been going back to the issue over and over and over again because it really is like everything branches out of that one issue. This group of characters does go through a portal together with Magic carrying Curse against her will because Curse is immune to any kind of psychic mojo. She was about to curse Charles Xavier and got cut off by going through the portal. Now, these characters end up together, even though other groups who went through portals together, you know, like the five, did not end up in the same place. So, again, not a lot of consistency, but oh well, that's just the way this, this story works. So, the grown-ups, meaning not curse, immediately get drawn into a fantasy battle, killing off some generic orc-type monsters, and make friends with, I'm going to call him Trebine of the Veneer. I have no idea how to say either of those words, but that's what I'm going with. So Trebine is a new character, and the Veneer are the residents of Vanaheim. Vanaheim being one of the ten realms in all those Thor books, and it, they're basically on the same level as the Asgardians. Uh, in fact, Thor's mother, or stepmother, depending on what retcon you accept as headcanon, uh, Freya, she's from Vanaheim originally. So she moved from Vanaheim to uh, Asgard. So Trebine tells our heroes about a long-standing prophecy that they, hey, they closely resemble, and, and shows them their statues of four of them, Danny, Mary, Dust, and Marrow, but no statue of magic. Little interruption, folks. Uh, this is Jason just letting you know that behind the scenes, Ruben got called away to do some actually important work stuff. So that left me behind to finish up telling you all about the rest of Justice League, I, I mean, the rest of Realms of X, number one. So. We were about to start talking about the two strands of this story. And one of the strands, we have the, the grown-ups. Magic, Danny, Typhoid, Dust, and Marrow. And these grown-ups immediately get drawn into a fantasy battle, killing off some generic orc-type monsters and making friends with Trebine of the Veneer. That's the pronunciation I'm going with. Tell me if I'm wrong. So Trebine is a new character. And the Veneer are the residents of Vanaheim. Vanaheim being one of those ten realms from all the Thor books. And the, Van the Veneer of Vanaheim are basically on the same level as the Asgardians. In fact, Thor's mother, or possibly stepmother, depending on which retcon your, your headcanon goes to, uh, Freya, she's from Vanaheim. So she kind of came over from Vanaheim and joined up with Asgard. Now, Trebine tells our heroes about a long-standing prophecy that they closely resemble. There's even statues of four of them, these being Danny, Mary, Dust and Marrow, but not Magic. Again, same exact story beat, more or less, in Justice the Odyssey. Magic is having a rough time already because, as I'm sure you all remember, she was dosed with nanobots by Dr. Stasis, and her powers are on the fritz. A lot of that going around this week. The prophecy says that the arrival of these four heralds the end of Vanaheim. Uh-oh. It says that the White Witch will attack, the Veneer will defend, and these four strangers will play a part in all of it. Trebine also mentions an earlier prophecy and how the Veneer averted trouble in that case by massively simplifying their society, leaving their big fancy citadels, returning to a simpler life in the forest. To massively, to massively oversimplify myself, you might think of them as Asgardians gone Amish. Apologies to all the Amish who listen to my podcast. Uh, so that part of the story was, was just okay. We've seen lots of prophecies in these books, so that's not so exciting. Uh, and mostly, like Ruben mentioned earlier, it didn't feel like any of the characters were acting like themselves. I don't know much about Dust and Marrow, but Magic and Mary's voices seem especially off-model. 
However, for me, the book was completely saved by its other half, which is all about Curse. Curse is by far the best part of this book. She's not also not a character I knew all that much about. She's brand new in the Krakoan era, first appearing in Marauders number one. Most of her appearances have been in the X-Men Green story in the X-Men Unlimited web series, of which the less said the better. Her origin and backstory has, as far as I can tell, not been established. She's a kid, and she looks like a humanoid red lizard, and she has reality-warping curse powers. If she puts a bad curse on someone, they suffer. If she puts a helpful curse on someone, they benefit, but the suffering rebounds onto her. Whenever she makes a curse, somebody's got to pay. When she finds herself in the fantasy world of Vanaheim, she's thrilled. She's already dressed basically like a little kid pretending to be a Disney princess. She runs off during that battle and gets herself in several kinds of trouble. Gronbeck does a, a really nice job here of showing us how Curse's powers work. Some trolls try to mess with her, and, and she curses them into being useless piles of stone. Uh, that's bad for them, so nothing happens to her. Unfortunately for Curse, the White Witch is after her. We're not shown who this White Witch is until the very, very end of the book, but yeah, it's Saturnine. She wants to win Curse's trust and use her as a weapon. If the grown-ups part of this book is inspired by Justice the Odyssey, the Curse part of the book feels inspired by Narnia and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've read that book or seen that movie, this will feel really familiar to you with the White Witch and Edmund in that story. <clears throat> Saturnine tricks Curse into using her Curse power to save a little boy, and then because she helped someone instead of hurting them, Curse herself suffers terribly. She seems racked with pain and starts bleeding from her mouth. Really gross. And here's the big reveal. Saturnine swoops in to comfort Curse and win her trust. Well, if we're going to have a fantasy-type book in the X-Line, so far I like this one substantially more than I did any of that Betsy Britain stuff. Not a super high bar, but it's something. My enjoyment here is really all about our nasty little kid character, so I hope we get more of Curse, and I could do with less of everybody else. The artist Diogenes Neves does particularly well, again, in drawing the settings. I think I mentioned that for a different artist in another book, which is really important when the setting of this book is so vital to the story, so different from the setting of every other book. The magical creatures here look great, too. The orcs, the wolves, the trolls, even giant butterflies. And uh, he draws a great curse, too. She's an enthusiastic, semi-innocent child with a real mean streak. I'm less thrilled with some of the adults' facial expressions, which can seem generic and interchangeable, a lot like their dialogue. Maybe that's more the script fault, I don't know. But again, give me more curse, give me more magic beasts, less of the boring grown-ups. Uh, one more thing I have to mention is the data pages. They are walls of text. Because I'm a giant nerd, I used Google Lens to copy the text of the longest page and do a word count, and it contains 519 words and over 3,000 characters on one page. You know, I actually don't mind reading. I, I like reading. But if I'm reading a comic book, a block of fairly unimportant text just slams the brakes on any emotion or excitement that the art had been building. So if you haven't read this book yet and plan to, just skip the data page in your first read and maybe go back and check them out afterwards if you feel like it. They don't seem like a big deal. So I like the cursed parts of this book so much I'm even willing to overlook the presence of Opal Lunar Saturnine, a character I am on record as not liking. I'd give the curse half of this book an 8.5, and the other half of this book a 6. Split the difference, and I'm giving Realm of X number 1 a 7.3 out of 10. Uh, Ruben, I know, was going to give this a 6.5 out of 10, 
a little lower than me unless I was able to talk him up on the curse bits. And I know he particularly liked that uh, prophecy of the past where the veneer changed their whole society in order to get around the prophecy. So maybe we'll hear some more about that going forward as well. So that's our podcast this week. Uh, I do have some recommended reading for you. That would be the Extermination miniseries. And hey, you know, what the heck? If you've got that DC app, you might as well go read the first couple issues of Justice League Odyssey. Next week looks like, knock on wood, maybe a little bit of a slower week for Xbox. The big book is going to be Ms. Marvel v. New Mutant number one. So it is coming out of the X office. It has all of the Fall of X trade dress on the cover. So we'll see just how much she is integrated into this Fall of X story. I'm looking forward to seeing that. There's also Wolverine number 36, which ties in with that Weapons of Vengeance story. And there is Ultimate Invasion number three, which we may or may not talk about depending on all sorts of things. But until then, folks, thank you for listening. Uh, tune in again next week. And until then, go read some X-Men comics.